As of this month, public enterprises are required to adopt blind hiring, which means job applicants omit their address, family relations, physical condition, alma mater and photo from their resumes. The idea is that these factors can lead to discrimination and getting rid of them was one of President Moon Jae-in's pledges back when he was a candidate. Let's bring in Professor Lee Byung-hun from the Department of Sociology first at Chungang University before we get an international perspective on this. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor E. Yeah, good morning, Alex. Yes. So, firstly, what is the government's expectation of the outcome here? Uh, you know, Korean young people have a big problem in getting a job after their education in college, especially graduates from local colleges and second-ranked universities to have bigger problem in finding jobs since uh, Alma Mayor has been very important to the recruitment process in private and public enterprises. And the blind recruitment system aims to include such conditions as alma mater or the current ranking in the process of recruitment review, as you said. I think the government expects that this blind system would reduce the discrimination against young people graduated from second-ranked universities and local colleges outside Seoul metropolitan areas. I mean, it's one thing to look at what your education's been like at your alma mater or or where you're from. What about employers here asking applicants in the past anyway, and still in the private sector, to attach photos uh, requiring information on what jobs family members do, that sort of thing? Is it it unique in Korea? uh, It doesn't exist in the United States or other Western countries, to my knowledge. It is very unique in in Korean, Korean society. So... This is now treated as not a good practice among private companies. Thus, many private companies change this policy and let applicants not put on information about their uh, family background or especially parent uh, jobs. How are employers feeling about this change? It obviously gives them less to go with when making important decisions on who they're going to hire. Has there been any sort of backlash? I don't think so. This change will... Mandatory apply to the public sector following uh, the government policy. However, private companies will decide whether they adopt it or not. It is not mandatory for them to do it. I think employees will see what happens with the uh, blind recruitment in pu- public sector, and they will decide uh, later. Yes. What's your own opinion, though, on blind recruitment? Uh, this blind recruitment may help reduce the discrimination against a great, a young graduate from second-ranked universities and local colleges. But I think this effect would be uh, limited because this policy cannot deal with the uh, polarization of a college education market. There is the uh, upper-class children may have higher aspects such as foreign language skills, job interview skills for getting decent jobs than the low-class ones. Uh, we may need more fundamental policy action to tackle uh, opportunity inequality uh, coming from social polarization. That's right. my, uh, my opinion. Right, Professor E. Thank you very much for offering that to us today. Okay, thank you. Bye. Professor E. Byung-hoon of Chungang University. Obviously, <laughs> there is... Some controversy around this, uh, the idea, for example, that you 
try to equalise the background of, of job applicants? Are we then doing a disservice to those who have worked harder at school or is this only uh, a battle against the the privileged when it comes to their own family background? You can text us your own thoughts right now, pound a sharp 1013 for 51 per message. We have seen studies elsewhere in the world suggesting that job applicants' name itself can can be causing a bias. Uh, and to eliminate that, Australia, Canada and the UK are trying out a name-blind recruitment process for some public positions. Let's bring in Professor Rupa Banerjee from Ryerson University's Ted Rogers School of Management in Canada, who conducted a study on this matter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So there's a well-known example where the name-blind recruitment had a real effect. The Toronto Symphony Orchestra, it began auditioning musicians behind a screen in 1980. I think we've seen the uh, popular TV show The Voice uh, try to uh, play on that whole idea as well. But going back to this original, what was it like, the outcome? Actually, the TSO, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, found really positive results. Um, At the time, the primary focus for the blind auditions was to equalize uh, the gender imbalance within the Toronto Symphony. Um, In the 1970s uh, and earlier, uh, the symphony was almost entirely made up of white males. Um, And so the focus was really on bringing in uh, women musicians into the fold. Um, And uh, so not only did they have the auditions behind a screen, they even laid down carpet so that the uh, those auditioning uh those who are judging the auditioners couldn't hear heels for example uh for the person who's approaching to play the instrument um now their initiative for in that case actually paid off really well so if you go to the Toronto Symphony today you'll see that almost half of the musicians are female and um although they don't have uh very uh reliable numbers when you look at, out into the um, into the actual musicians, there's a lot of um, ethnic minorities as well. So not only did it diversify in terms of gender, but in terms of race. So um, I would say that the Toronto Symphony's example is a really positive one. I mean, the thing is, if you're going to do things completely randomly, and everyone in the world does that, you are going to have scenarios where you know everybody chosen is white female, or everybody chosen is you know. In, in one particular category, there's no, there's no guarantee that it's going to be fairly distributed by, by chance. Do we, do we also have to have mechanisms in place to ensure there's a level of, of a fair distribution? Absolutely. So this, this process only looks at that very small window of time uh, during the hiring process uh, or the audition process when uh, you're first bringing in a new candidate. There's so many steps before and after that that obviously also have to be taken into account. So, for example, in the case of the Toronto Symphony, are ethnic minorities or women uh, even being accepted into uh, music schools um, and, you know, the prestigious programs that would allow them to reach a level of musicianship to actually be able to audition for the Toronto Symphony? Um, When you're thinking about um, in the job market, you know, obviously blind hiring, name blind hiring would eliminate the bias based on name, but uh, 
just having the qualifications, we know that there's a lot of barriers for certain groups to even get those qualifications to be able to apply for those jobs. So, yes, this does not eliminate every level of inequity, and you'll still may have scenarios where you have predominantly males or predominantly whites mm. uh, because of the underlying uh, other layers of injustice and inequity that exist. But you still have, you know, it's, it's one step in the right direction, in my opinion. I just want to pick up, though, on, on what we also heard in our previous interview with Professor E, based here in, in, in this country, and, and how fair it is to try to impose blind hiring in itself because if, if we were to judge applicants based on their ability for example musicians based on their ability and to do so blindly and if they all happen to turn out to be let's say white men uh you, you wouldn't necessarily blame an orchestra manager for wanting to have the very best musicians on the other hand do they have to take into consideration that for whatever reason those white men have had a, a more privileged background you know, I think at this point, uh, I can speak for uh, sort of immigrant-receiving countries that uh, have dealt with this issue of uh, ethnic discrimination. Uh, and gender discrimination, of course, is sort of worldwide. So that, uh, from, in terms of the, from the gender perspective, obviously it can apply worldwide. But from, for uh, immigrant-receiving countries where diversity, ethnic diversity, is a major issue and uh, inequity among uh, minorities is a major issue, we have to focus on the fact that, uh, you know, we know that even with qualifications that are the same as, uh, you know, majority members, so white males, for example, uh, we know that applicants face bias. They face discrimination. And so given that fact, I mean, that's kind of a fact. I mean, we've seen it repeatedly in study after study. Um, you know, any small measure I think is is a step in the right direction. Now that being said, there have been some criticisms that have said, "Well, you know, what about uh, as I think you've mentioned in the last interview, what about those who have, you know, worked extra hard and uh, you know, gotten certain qualifications from certain in institutions?" Mm. If you completely blind out names of universities, names of pri previous employers, yes, I agree. I think that that will lead to perhaps uh, some disadvantage among those who have actually worked hard to get there. But what, what I'm talking about and what I study is name-blind hiring. Yes. Not necessarily hiding your qualifications or hiding where you got your university um, degree, but really disguising or eliminating that name because that, that is a, a major source of, of bias, and, and we've seen that um, time and time again in studies throughout the world. Yeah, yeah. So just to clarify, your study found that people with Asian-sounding names got 20 to 40% less callbacks compared with their counterparts with Anglo-sounding names when applying That's for correct. a job. In this part of the world, it's the reverse. And actually, it's, it's probably even more obvious when someone has a Korean background in this country because of the relatively limited number of possible surnames compared with, with foreign counterparts. So does your research suggest that people in power like to hire more people like themselves effectively? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's a combination of a number of factors, right? So we know that this issue of similar to me bias, right? People who feel comfortable around others who resemble themselves. That's very common. I mean, um, it's often not even conscious, right? It's in a very subconscious level uh, where you, you know, feel more comfortable pronouncing those names. You feel more comfortable having an informal chat 
with somebody who perhaps, you know, you see some kind of resemblance with. Um, and so uh, from our perspective, it's not necessarily sort of blatant racism, although there may be a bit of that. Uh, it's A lot of it is very much on the subconscious level and a matter of uh, getting people to even realize that, you know, bias exists and that they have their own blind spots, their own biases. It's a really interesting subject. Professor Banerjee, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Professor Rupa Banerjee of Ryerson University. And let me welcome further feedback on this subject. Maybe you've been applying for a job and you have some suspicions about why you didn't get it. But also, I'd like to ask you what you think about how we introduce fairness into our society. It's a big issue at the moment from education up. And, and it's something that I've been reflecting on recently uh, on the show is, uh, publicly as well. Uh, how we equalize children to give them an equal opportunity going forward when we know that people have different skill sets. Powder Sharp 1013 for 51 per message.